0: Is not being televised, but it is being digitized, right here on Digital Village.
1: On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology, and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side, and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. David Brown, a former fellow at the US Department of Energy's ARPA-E under the Obama administration. And currently he's developing sustainable technology at a startup in the Bay Area. Dr. Brown analyzed the remaining 2020 candidates for president, and we discussed their plans for combating climate change, how Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders match up, and also how they compare to Trump, and what powers the president actually has.
0: I do believe there are a set of things that can be done without congressional support. So the Clean Air Act allows the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants as well as from cars. So these plans and these targets to decarbonize new power plant construction, decarbonize existing power plants, decarbonize transportation, that's achievable.
1: And in the later part of the show, I'll be joined by Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian, who gives us some practical advice on how to protect your phone from things other than COVID-19.
2: Make sure you actually do have a pin protecting your phone. I've had friends that haven't used a pin on their phone. And whenever they do that, I go ahead and change their wallpaper background to maybe my face making a grimace. Your phone can access most of your digital life.
1: Since we were last on the air in January, the novel coronavirus, or now dubbed COVID-19, has spread. And as of now, there are cases across the United States. Conferences are getting canceled, including big names like South by Southwest and GDC. People are stockpiling supplies. Songs about handwashing are spreading online. But it. Can be hard to separate fact from hype. We're joined by a friend of the show, Dr. June Axup. She's a scientist with a PhD in chemical biology from the Scripps Research Institute and is the scientific director and partner at IndieBio. Dr. Axup has some practical advice for our listeners out there. talk about what we can do to help keep ourselves safe and stop the spreading of COVID-19?
3: COVID-19, as with a lot of other viruses, are oftentimes transmitted through mucus and droplets. So if you are coughing, it sprays and it can get on things. This particular virus, we are still studying. So a lot of this information is still underway, but there are definitely some best practices that you can do today to help prevent the spread of of the virus. Uh, The first most basic thing is wash your hands. Don't touch things and make sure you wash your hands as much as possible. And the best practice is to use soap with warm water for at least 20 seconds and make sure you dig into all areas of your hands uh, because just rinsing it underwater does not actually take off all the virus. You can alternatively use alcohol-based hand sanitizers and then because just touching the virus is actually not the vector, the main vector is touching something, touching the virus and then touching your face and especially through your mouth passages, nose passages into your lungs. That's how the virus gets in. So don't touch your face and Oddly, this is something that we do so often and we never even notice it. And so a lot of people have been trying to combat this by wearing masks. And I think it is a good idea to wear masks especially if you're working in known contamination areas but it's actually not necessary and a lot of studies have actually shown that oftentimes what the mask really does is prevent you from touching your face so you know as long as you aren't touching your face um, that's fine and oftentimes if the mask gets contaminated that's not a great thing and that could be a vector for disease and some people use masks incorrectly too so in general people are actually not advised to use masks unless they think they are in a danger zone, potentially on a plane or work in a hospital, and in general, you try to to not have to touch things that have been contaminated with the coronavirus. This the studies so far have shown that the coronavirus might last on surfaces up to nine days. So, and that is something way worse than a lot of other viruses that we've seen. There's other viruses that essentially immediately fall apart if it touches a surface, but that's not the case with coronavirus. And people are also thinking that it might spread even without symptoms. And of course, the flu is still around too. So some people could just have the normal flu. Some people could be having coronavirus. We don't know. Yeah, it's important that people
1: don't panic. But what are some precautions that you recommend? I
3: think just as a safety precaution, if you do suspect that something has been contaminated, wipe it down with some ethanol, with some Lysol, or wash it in the sink. That's probably a good practice. If you are going to sneeze, sneeze into a tissue because the tissue you can toss. But if you don't have, tissue on you of course it's better to sneeze into your elbow versus spraying it all over the room and then in general you know you don't want to be touching things you don't want to be touching other people so we all right now are trying to get away from the practice of shaking hands and you know some people do the elbow bump although i feel like you know if you're sneezing into your elbow and then you are doing the elbow bump that's still a vector of transmission so my personal preference has been the vulcan salute because that also tells your fellow person to live long and prosper as well.
1: That's very fitting. Yeah, I like that. I think we should just abolish handshaking to begin with. So let's talk about building immunity. What are things that you've seen in literature that we can be doing to help build our immune systems to if we do get sick, that maybe we're able to combat the virus much more effectively?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think actually the number one thing is stress. Make sure you decrease stress as much as possible, which is really, really hard to do if you're reading news about the coronavirus. Make sure you get enough sleep. There are some basic supplements that can help. Probably the most useful ones are vitamin D and zinc lozenges. Those, especially if you feel something in your throat, zinc is highly efficient at preventing the virus to proliferate. And so that has been shown for colds. And then in general, you know, try to reduce travel, work from home if if that's possible. And if you feel sick, you should definitely go home and encourage your colleagues to go home as well. I think this virus in particular is very novel and we're still collecting a lot of data around it. And there's also a lot of misinformation being spread about it too. So just keep an eye out, read the news, understand how things are being portrayed. And in some cases, things can be a lot of hype and hysteria and don't be too drawn away into the hysteria, but also be smart, be safe, uh, encourage your family members, encourage your colleagues uh, to stay safe.
1: was Dr. June Axup? that's PhD, not MD. She's the scientific director at biotech incubator IndieBio on some practical ways to protect yourself from COVID-19. I, for one, am all for the end of the handshake. Vulcan salutes from here on out. And remember to wash your hands for 20 seconds. For Trekkies like myself, you could recite, space, the final frontier. There's a lot that tech companies are doing as well to combat the coronavirus. Google Meet, Microsoft Teams, and Cisco's Webex are free right now to encourage people who can work from home to do so. Many tech companies are offering to pay hourly employees affected by the coronavirus. Amazon is working to remove products that were attempting to price gouge customers from their site, while YouTube is trying to prevent video creators from making money off the coronavirus. And Facebook is working to try to remove hoaxes and conspiracy theories around it. Information is updating every day, and it's important to not panic. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, climate change. Even though COVID-19 is taking over the news, climate change is another problem humanity has to face. And one question, where do the Democratic candidates for president stand? Dr. David Brown, a former fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy's ARPA-E under the Obama administration, has compared Bernie Sanders' and Joe Biden's plans. And how those compare to President Trump. Listen to this. Could you talk a little bit about what you did to compare the Democratic candidates with how they're responding to climate change?
0: The first thing that I did was read all the plans one by one. And I looked at them and tried to separate it into four different subcomponents, which I believe are necessary for an effective response to climate change that will keep us within what the IPC says we need to hit. And actually, All the plans at least mentioned some aspect of this, even if they didn't use these words. And so the four components were green goals and mandates, uh, second, green R&D, third, green global development, and fourth, green domestic deployment. These are the four components I looked at. The first goal is about goals and mandates, and that means you know we have to have a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And to do that, we're gonna need to decarbonize different sectors of the economy, from transportation to power production to industry progressively. And so I am looking for the candidates to have specific goals for emission reductance sector by sector at specific dates. And some of those dates should be within the next 10 years. So something that they're going to actually do during their administration. And typically these goals will be accomplished through a regulatory mechanism. So this is very much like how car fuel economy standards work. Every year, the federal government asks that car manufacturers produce new cars that are more and more efficient on average. And so what these policies all have is some kind of plan to have that same thing be true, to get to zero emissions for vehicles, zero emissions for new buildings, zero emissions for new power plants, as well as standards for existing power plants.
1: And what about green R&D?
0: while we have the technology to solve and decarbonize about 80% of the economy, there's another 20% that we don't really have the technology yet. So that's things like making zero emission food from our agriculture system. That's like having zero carbon plane flights and making steel without coking carbon, which produces CO2. So to solve those problems, R&D funding is necessary to figure them out in the next 20 years. And typical plans have that be the last part of the economy that we decarbonize somewhere between 2040 and 2050 in order to hit the goal of a net zero economy in 2050. The third part is global development. So climate change is a global problem and developed countries need to lead and have a trade policy that is centered around getting green technology deployed into the developing world. And that starts with a tariff on greenhouse gas emissions that come in so that we don't just import emissions when we import goods. So there's no good if we make zero carbon steel here, but we just import high carbon steel from China or India or another country. And then the second part is we need to help those countries develop their own green infrastructure, which takes the form of financial aid as well as financing.
1: And the final part, the actual domestic deployment of these technologies. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: So 2030 is only 10 years away, and the energy technology infrastructure, like power plants that produce lots of CO2 emissions, will last for decades. So we need to make these transitions, uh, retrofit these power plants or take them online and replace them with solar power plants for their natural lifetimes. And that's gonna take some kind of uh, incentive program or some kind of government procurement program. There are lots of different ideas that people have here and that's essential to implementing some group of them in order to move the economy to a carbon-free economy as fast as we need to do
1: let's talk about some of the candidates and, and how they did we'll start with uh, bernie sanders so how was bernie across the board
0: bernie's overall score i gave him an eight plus The only section i didn't give him an a plus on was green global development but i didn't actually give any of the candidates an a plus i think they all underestimate the amount of financial aid that's going to be needed given internationally so he has very specific strong targets like in fact his targets are met will do better than hitting one and a half degree of global warming Uh, he looks for a multiplying of green r d by a factor of four to 25 billion per year which is probably as fast as our R&D community could ramp up in response to that amount of money. And he's looking to deploy an immense amount of money domestically and internationally. So internationally, $200 billion over the next 10 years into the Green Climate Fund, bringing it from its current level of $8 billion to $208 billion. And domestically, uh, he claims about $15 trillion in green infrastructure spending by my count, uh, which is a little more conservative than what counts for green infrastructure. I would say it's about... trillion. So that's a substantial amount of money per year. And he's looking to do it. Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist, and his tactic is to use direct federal procurement of power plants, of infrastructure, as well as subsidies to individuals like homeowners in order to retrofit their buildings or exchange their dirty car for an electric vehicle.
1: So let's then talk about Biden, who... You gave a b minus who didn't clearly didn't do as well as sanders uh, what are some things in his plan that look good versus some things that maybe don't look so good
0: biden has endorsed the green new deal and he has all the aspects of a good plan in terms of the structure he does say there should be goals and mandates he does say there should be some sort of incentive program to help people adopt this technology sooner what he doesn't do is commit to really anything other than re-implementing policies of the Obama administration. So various executive orders like the Clean Power Plan that the Trump administration has rolled back. He says there definitely will be emission targets by the end of his first term, but what those emission targets are, he's refusing to be pinned down on. So I have some hope for Biden that with a significant amount of, let's say, encouragement from climate change activists, that he'll start to flesh out his policy. But right now he's getting away with a completely vague plan. He has proposed spending a significant amount of money on green R&D. So he's talking about spending $40 billion uh, a year on clean tech R&D over the next 10 years. And this is actually the place where there's a very broad agreement. Uh, So this is probably the most likely thing to happen politically, because even some people on the center right are in favor of a huge increase of research and development money for clean tech.
1: These plans are all, all great coming from presidential candidates, but really they're gonna need a lot of help from Congress, right, to get all this stuff done.
0: You definitely do more if you have broad political support from Congress. I do believe there are a set of things that can be done without congressional support. So the Clean Air Act allows the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants as well as from cars. So these plans and these targets to decarbonize new power plant construction, decarbonize existing power plants, decarbonize transportation, that's achievable. The federal government also has a huge amount of ability to set trade policy. So while Bernie Sanders couldn't unilaterally spend $100 billion in foreign aid without congressional authorization, they could ask for adjustment tariffs for CO2 that's coming in from overseas. They could apply soft power and create trade rules that favor import of green technology. So much as uh, Trump has been playing a lot of games with tariffs and trade wars, those kind of tactics could be used in a more positive sense to ensure that our international trade is green
1: so that's all of the democratic candidates for president but we're currently in a world where donald trump is our president how does trump compare in, in any of these areas and, I, and i'm pretty sure everyone and my listeners already know
0: i scored him an f he doesn't believe climate change is real thinks it's a liberal conspiracy against him and Donald Trump has a fairly nationalistic anti-globalist ideology which makes him probably pretty ill-disposed to wanting to lead and solve a problem that requires fundamentally international cooperation things are a little better with republicans in congress they've noticed that 70 percent of the united states they're about thinks climate change is a problem and something should be done about and they've come up with some solutions planting a lot of trees which isn't going to be enough and there is the bright spot that the center right of the country is now supportive of increasing green R&D. So Lamar Alexander has his green Manhattan project to a double green R&D over the next five years. In summary, with Sanders, we have an A candidate. And with Biden, we have B candidate with an incomplete plan. The positive side is one, B, that B is much higher than Trump's F. And two, these candidates on the center left the moderate wing of the party do appear to be persuadable they are moving more and more towards climate action under pressure from the liberal wing of the party and so even if a biden becomes a nominee there's still a lot that can be done and there's still an opportunity to influence the process in order to get the climate change proposal that we desperately need
1: That was Dr. David Brown, a former fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy's ARPA-E under the Obama administration. Dr. Brown compared Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden's plans to combat climate change and how those compare to Trump's. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian, about how to protect your phone, not from COVID-19, but from everything else. Listen to this. So let's talk about securing your phone. Roy, what are some of recommendations for keeping your phone secure?
2: One of the things you want to keep in mind is keep your phone up to date. That applies to both your phone's operating system and the apps. There are all sorts of bugs and vulnerabilities that are discovered all the time. And you want to keep updating your operating system and your app so that you can get protected from these vulnerabilities. When it comes to your phone's operating system, install updates as they appear, but also turn on automatic updates. I'll just go online and search for turn on automatic updates for whatever phone model you have, and then you'll find instructions there really easily. It's also really important to keep your apps up to date. Depending on the permissions your apps have, they can have access to your photos, files, even your microphone and, and camera. And if these apps have a vulnerability, they could potentially be remotely accessed to either steal information or secretly record you. Recently, it was discovered that Jeff Bezos' phone was hacked and that hack involved a bug in WhatsApp that allowed a text message from a number to give remote access to the phone. So this bug has been patched already, but this is just an example of how WhatsApp, a really popular app and an app with a ton of support, had a very huge vulnerability that gave complete access to phones. So keep your apps up to date and turn on auto-updates.
1: One of the concerns about auto-updating your OS is What if it breaks things?
2: So when there are updates, they end up fixing known vulnerabilities. Even though an update might create new vulnerabilities or have bugs in it, you're at least protecting against a known vulnerability. And those known vulnerabilities are known, meaning attackers know about them and potentially use them. It makes the most sense. Even though there is the risk of bugs and things not working after an update, overall, if you do want to be more secure, this is a small sacrifice to make, which is basically risking your phone getting a bit buggier if you do have an update. But in general, in my experience, things just keep getting better. A lot of times, operating system updates are buggy when the operating system is new. But as time goes on, they get more stable. So, yeah, just keep updating.
1: Just keep updating. What about the types of apps that you install?
2: Be careful what you install. This applies more to to Android apps, but... Uh, Apple apps also can can pose a risk. When you install an app, a lot of times they ask you for app permissions. And in the case of Android, there have been several examples of free apps that go ahead and steal information or malware and they spy on you. When you install an app, read your views, do some research, be careful of the permissions the apps ask for. If your flashlight app is asking you for microphone and camera access, something's probably not right. Don't install it. There have been several stories recently of this chinese company creating multiple shell companies and from those companies creating a bunch of free apps that have been installed by 300 million users and those apps were basically spyware so be careful what apps you install and be aware of the app permissions that the apps are asking for and don't just agree to everything without actually reading what the prompts are
1: let's talk about pins for your phone i think most people know not to pull a kanye west where you have your pin be zero 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 zero. but what else should people know
2: yeah so don't use a dumb pin and also make sure it's you actually do have a pin protecting your phone i've had friends that haven't used a pin on their phone and whenever they do that i go ahead and change their wallpaper background as well to, to maybe my face making a grimace Your phone can access most of your digital life. So protect it with a a pin or even a password. That's sometimes an option if you want to be extra secure. It's a bit inconvenient to type a good password on on your phone, but it could be worth it, especially if you want to be extra secure.
1: Or just use your face or your thumbprint, right? Or your fingerprint, depending on what device you have.
2: Right, that's true. But your security is only as strong as your weakest link. So if you have uh, Kanye000000, pin on your phone even if you might have face unlock or fingerprint unlock if someone sees you type that in just once they can get access to your phone really easily so pick a complex pin it's nice that phones the number pad to unlock your phone has letters on there so if you can think of like a six letter word you can easily remember it and type out the numbers for that word but yeah don't do obvious things like your date of birth
1: So locking your phone kind of comes hand in hand, though, with having a pin and password, right? Just making sure your phone doesn't stay unlocked for long periods of time.
2: Yeah, I mean, who hasn't forgotten to lock their phone when they've put it down on the table and walked away? Like, everyone ends up doing that sooner or later. And if your phone isn't protected by a pin, that's bad. But on top of that, if it doesn't lock automatically or if it takes, like, 10 minutes for it to lock, your phone's basically vulnerable for 10 minutes. So go ahead and set a good timer to auto lock your phone. If you just search for how to screen lock in your phone model, you'll find instructions on setting that up on your phone. But generally what I would recommend is like a minute or less, especially because we have our phones on ourselves all the time in public.
1: What about those public USB chargers? You see them kind of out and about, not just at the airport, but lots of other places too, where I can just plug in my phone with USB, with a lightning cable, if you have an iPhone or the USB-C, depending on what type of phone you have. Are those safe?
2: Nope, they are not safe. So you don't really know Who set up those public USB charging ports? Those could actually not just be directly connected to power, but also connected to a computer that tries to go ahead and hack your phone and steal your data. Using a public USB charging port isn't safe. There is a solution though, and that's using something called a USB condom. USB cables, they all have, they have wires for power and wires for data. A USB condom is a small USB adapter that goes ahead and prevents the data wires from connecting and only allows power to go through. So if you use that in between your phone and a public USB charger, you're safe. You can also just not use public USB chargers and have your own USB charging plug or battery with you at all times. But yeah, definitely don't use public USB charging ports. Securing your phone, just keep your operating system up to date, turn on automatic updates, make sure your apps are up to date to protect against bugs. and. Make sure your phone's locked down with a pin or password, because if it's stolen, you really don't want anyone getting access to everything you have on there.
1: That was Nothing Is Secure's Roy Natian about easy ways to keep your phone safe. We've covered COVID-19 and how the Vulcan salute should be the new handshake. And remember, don't panic and wash your hands. Dr. David Brown told us where the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates stand on combating climate change. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Bernie Gallagher at In A Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org, click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at digital v radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Dr. June Axup, Dr. David Brown, and Roy Natian. We are off the fun drive, but you can still show your support for the station. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Next week, we'll be joined by Jessica Alter, the co-founder of Tech for Campaigns, which helps to provide the digital arm for progressive and centrist campaigns. There's that and much more. Until then.
2: Thanks for listening
0: to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And we'll see see you online. online.